I was not expecting the Will Smith off the top. Uh, what's going on at Sportsnet today here? Jamie Dodd and Josh Elliott Wolf with you on Sportsnet 650 for another edition of Sportsnet Today. And yeah, so this is just kind of a, I don't want to say makeshift show, Josh, but you know, it's not one of our podcast feeds, so we can actually use licensed music, which is a big thrill. Don't got to worry about copyright. Don't here. have to worry about the copyright infringement or anything like that. We can play whatever we want. Uh, and of all the songs in the world, producer Ben chose uh, Miami by Will Smith. So I've done a few shows with Ben. It's a go-to for him. If he's in a pinch and he needs to find a song, Will Smith Miami comes out. So it never misses. I got to say, and I, I'm not trying to throw you under the bus here or whatever, Ben. And it, it, look, we all have different musical tastes. Legit one of my least favorite songs of all time. I'm not joking. <laughs> one of my absolute least favorite songs of all time. No. I love it. And I enjoy... I know Josh loves it. I enjoy other Will Smith songs. You know, I mean, like, they're silly, they're goofy, but there's a sense of nostalgia to them. Miami, even at the time... What, what is this? Probably like 2000, 2001, something like that? 99? I don't know. Maybe. Before your time, I'm Josh. not the guy yeah, Before your time. <laughs> even at the time, as an undiscerning teenager, I was like, man, this song is awful. <laughs> This song is terrible. I think it's the beat. I, I like the, the production is just it's just repetitive. I like this <laughs> in the background. I love it. Miami, I've never been there. I assume it's like that all the time. Oh, it's exactly like that. They're just playing that on a loop all the time. So anyways, that was uh, that was very surprising. Haven't heard that song in a long time. But there you go. One of my least favorite songs of all time. Let's see. Uh, Noted. Let's see if we can uh, if we can cross some of the other ones off the list. Yeah. <laughs> just go searching. Show. Just go searching for Jamie Dodd most dislike most song. hated songs. Uh, I'm trying to think what else would be on that list. I think Mambo Number no. Five would be on that list for that's, me. That's a really I, bad I don't song. Like that yeah, that's a bad one. So there you go. That's another one uh, that you can play later, Ben. All right, enough of that. That caught me by surprise. It is Sportsnet today here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Josh Elliott Wolf, uh, and producer Ben running the show right now. So. Yesterday we heard from all of the uh, all of the principals involved. We heard from JT Miller, we heard from Patrick Alvin, and we've had a chance now, you know, quite a few days to wrap our heads around the fact that JT Miller has signed this long term extension. And you know, I think no matter what you think of the move from a long term strategic point of view for the Canucks, you know, the exciting thing is is that we can we can start diving into some other topics and specifically. Some on-the-ice subjects, Josh, because all of a sudden, you know, we're sitting here and we're, what, two weeks out from training camp? You know, Penticton will get going, the Young Stars will get going next week, and then after that, it's training camp in Whistler. So all of a sudden, now that we have the kind of biggest question of the offseason answered, and look, I understand there's still Bo Horvat talk, although I still think that deal will get done, but we can really turn our focus to some of the big on-ice questions, and I want to throw it out to the listeners, and, and you and I will get into it here. 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text line. Now that JT Miller is signed, what are the biggest questions you have going in to this Canucks season? And I think now that we know 100% JT Miller is going to be here, he's going to be here throughout the season. And seven more. And seven more after that, yes. Seven more seasons after that. But it does become really interesting to start thinking about what this team is going to look like, not just kind of line combinations and all that, 
but in terms of usage as well. And one thing, and, and we'll talk about some of the things that Patrick Alvin had to say throughout the course of the show here. One of the things I thought was really interesting that he said, though, was they would like to actually manage Miller's ice time a little bit better, right? And and this is a very prevalent theory across the world of sports now, right? You know, if you actually limit uh, a star player's ice time or playing time or whatever uh, the case may be a little bit, you can actually get more efficient production from them, keep that level of play even higher. But we also know Miller has been such a workhorse for this team, every situation, all the time. I'm really interested to see what that looks like. If they can actually stick to it. We know Bruce Boudreaux loves to play JT Miller. If they can actually stick to it, and especially when you sign a guy to this big deal, you want to get the most you can out of him, right? Like you, you signed him because you think he can be a workhorse for you. That is going to be maybe one of the biggest questions for me going into this season is what does it actually look like and how can they stick to managing Miller's ice time and does it pay off in the way they want it to? I think the biggest way for it to stick would be for the team to get off to at least a decent start, as opposed to last year where they were essentially playing catch-up for most of the season, trying to get back to a playoff spot, trying to just get back into the race in general. And then when Boudreaux came in, it was all all hands on deck, trying to get to the playoffs. And that's, I think, a big part of why Miller was playing so much, because obviously, especially when Pedersen wasn't going, he yeah. was the only guy that was consistently putting up points. I do wonder how... Assuming Pedersen is back to kind of what he was doing, maybe not at the level of the second half of last season, but at least close to it, how that impacts Miller's usage. And also they've added wingers too. And mm-hmm. I, I just wonder if now they have a more dedicated top nine and you can easily balance those lines. And hey, if it's a runaway game, maybe you're playing Miller a little bit less as well. My question in the area I'm really interested to see is I I think if you're just looking for where can we knock Miller's time down a little bit and look we're probably talking about something you know a minute 90 seconds a game that we're not talking about going all of a sudden he's gonna be playing 17 minutes a game right this is still a guy who's gonna get a ton of ice time probably is gonna lead the forwards in ice time on this group but if you're looking for the kind of low-hanging fruit where can you reduce his minutes a little bit the spot that jumps out to me is the penalty kill because, look, he's going to play a lot at 5-on-5. Five five. Now, with the so-called, you know, I think uh, one of our textures yesterday called it a three-headed monster at center. You don't have to lean on him super much at 5-on-5 five five necessarily, but he's going to get his minutes there. Obviously, he's going to play a lot on the power play. The penalty kill stands out to me because as much as we give JT Miller a lot of credit for, you know, shouldering a big load on the penalty kill... He's not very good at it. Well, I won't even say he's not very good at it, but it's not as if he's an elite penalty killer, right? It's He's had to do a lot of it almost by default because they haven't had a lot of legitimate penalty killing options, right? Mm -hmm. I think he's done a a passable job, but we all know what the results in the Canucks penalty kill have been. Now you look at it, and they bring in Curtis Lazar, they bring in Ilya Mikheyev. They should both feature heavily on the penalty kill, right? That's Those are reasons they signed both of those players, and the other thing that stands out to me is Bo Horvat and Elias Patterson started to show signs of being effective penalty killers late in the season last year. And if you're looking to limit JT Miller's minutes just a little bit, keep him a little bit fresher, you know, get him in situations where he can be more effective potentially than on the penalty kill, I think it starts with, first of all, you need Lazar and McKay to be effective, and I absolutely think they will. That's what they've been brought in to do. They're going to be effective in that role. But I think you have to be in a spot where Horvat and Patterson 
can play a dependable role in the penalty kill, right? I'm not saying they have to be the first choice guys over the boards, but at the very least, so you have another option, another unit that you can go to other than Miller and Pearson, where you think, oh my God, we have, we have to send Miller and Pearson out here again. You yeah. need to have more depth, more options, and to me, that's that's Horvat and Pedersen. I really like Pedersen as a, as a second penalty kill guy, where he's not the first when the, the penalty's taken. I, I would assume it's going to be Lazar Mikheyev as the forward's that are PK one, yeah. For the most part, I it seems re- like a safe bet. Yeah, and I really want to see Pedersen as the second guy because that's how you can try to generate offense if you're putting him over the boards after a dump and you're able to get him on the forecheck a little bit. I do wonder who they would pair him with. I I kind of want to see Pod Colson get a bit more time there, but you're right. I don't think Miller would be. I don't think he would be, and I don't think he should be option. One through three. Like, I think you only go to him if you have a few injuries and he has to play there. Yeah, under Travis Green, it was really they tried to kind of stick to two units on the penalty kill, right? So you basically were using, and I think in an ideal world, that iteration of the coaching staff would have used four forwards at any given time in the penalty kill, right? Mm -hmm. Just rotate back and forth. They were not good forwards. (laughs) No, not necessarily. Under Boudreaux, and part of this was Scott Walker, who then was, you know, unavailable, and now he's not with the team. But under Boudreaux, it was very much, we're going to use a lot of different guys. And I think part of that was just, let's gather some information. Let's see who's good at it. Let's see who can do it. But you did also fu- get into a situation late in the season where, okay, hey, this is beyond. This has kind of gone beyond just an experiment. Now we actually see that there's something with Horvat and Pedersen where they can use their IQ, and in particular Pedersen, they can be effective in that role. So I think at the bare minimum... You want to have the three forward duos you can rely on on mm-hmm. the penalty kill, right? Like even just that, and maybe you slot in JT Miller as number three there, right? So you're not constantly putting him over the boards. But even if you can just get to there where you say, we have these six guys that are dependable, that we trust, that we feel comfortable putting out in any situation. I mean, I think one, it's going to significantly help your penalty kill numbers, but it's also going to make sure you're not taxing JT Miller too much right now. And it's a. I think the emphasis from Patrick Alvine about trying to limit his minutes a little bit, it's smart because, one, I mean, you want to keep him effective down the stretch. If you do make it into the playoffs, all of that, you've also made a long-term commitment to this player now, right? So if You would like him to be healthy for most <laughs> yes. of those years. And if, if, if dialing it back just a tiny bit is going to help get a little bit more efficiency and a little bit more production down the road, it's the kind of thing that could be a smart long-term play from the team, too. And realistically, like, I don't. You just don't need him on the PK. Like it's not a necessity anymore now that you've added Lazar. You would McKay, love to be right? in a spot where you don't need him, right? Yeah. Where you're, you know, and now it, maybe you split up Pedersen and Horvat as a as a duo, and so there's more guys that. who can take draws, right? Mm-hmm. So you have kind of three guys with Lazar, Pedersen, and Horvat who can all go out and take a draw uh, on the penalty kill. Although I don't know. Unless Patterson's improved in the faceoff circle, I don't know that they'd be crazy about using him. That's why I almost in that think role. he's a guy that's he's never going to be the first out, but he'll come out during right, during the play. Yeah, um, but I think that's the area. If they do follow through, and uh, you know, look, sometimes it's hard to limit how much you're playing the guy you think is your best player, your best forward. But if they do follow through, that's the one that I'm going to be really interested to see is how much how much can they get away from him on the penalty kill and find some other viable, reliable, consistent. Options. 650-650, Dunbar-Lumber text line. Uh, what are your biggest questions now that uh, 
now that JT Miller has signed long-term with Vancouver Canucks, Salt Spring Ian in Victoria says, now that JT has signed, the only thing I need to think about is where to put my Canucks Stanley Cup tattoo. <laughs> All right, fair enough. I'm thinking thigh? <laughs> I would think shoulder. Right. I think it's just, like Stanley Cup, it's vertical. It would fit very well in a in a shoulder spot. Down, down my spine. Or I guess I mean like upper <laughs> arm kind down of. Your spine. You know? I'm thinking lower back. Lower back? <laughs> Um, Can you imagine? (laughs) (laughs) Somebody should do that. That Honestly, funny. Someone text in if you if you're so committed to the Canucks winning the cup. Yeah, Uh, Josh, what are your biggest questions now that JT Miller has signed for the Canucks? I would just mine is just general lineup questions. I would say how it's all going to shake out. Like I just wonder how. Like I know I know he was their best forward last year. I think ideally, and I know he's getting paid to be their best forward right now, but I think ideally Pedersen takes that step and shows, hey, he's he's better than Miller, and Miller can still be really elite, but you want Pedersen to take that step and be your number one guy as far as usage goes. So I'm just wondering how the lineup shakes out. I have a couple guys that yeah. I think would pair well with each other, but I do think we're going to see a lot of movement. The forward group is really fascinating because... Obviously, the narrative and what played out last year was the team was really struggling, Bruce Boudreaux took over, and they played really well after that. But it's not as if Boudreaux came in and found these magic line combinations and stuck with him for the rest of the way and unlocked his chemistry, and that's what drove the team, right? Mm-hmm. Other than the you know the mythical, famous Mott-Lamico-Highmore line, there was a ton of line juggling still, right? And part of that was performance part of that was injury COVID availability all of that there were there were legitimate reasons for the line juggling but it's it's kind of a funny position because you would think after the team went on that run we would have a more strong idea of okay these guys have to play together the this trio has to be together this duo has to be together there's no lotto line but I'm there's no lotto line I'm going in thinking is there I don't know I can't really necessarily think of a single duo where I look at it and say those two guys have to start together because of the chemistry we've seen. I think it's basically a blank slate. And yeah. there's a ton of different combinations you could try. I agree. I do there there are some that I'm very interested in seeing and seeing how they develop. Um to name one, I've kind of been on this train for a while and I know people have talked a lot about Hoaglander maybe starting uh-huh. in Abbotsford and trying to work his way up again because obviously he's waiver exempt and there's a lot of wingers on the Canucks and yep. it would make a lot of sense for him not to or to be the odd man out. I will say, I think if he has a good camp and it's very, he has to have a good camp, has to have a good preseason for this to happen, but I would like to see him get some extended time with Elias Patterson and probably right. Pod Colson on the other side. And the reason I say this is because taking a look at the numbers Last year, both under Green and Boudreaux, Pedersen had the most success when he was playing with Hoaglander. Hoaglander had the most success when he was playing with Pedersen. They made each other better. And that's why I'm I'm interested in seeing how that develops if it gets some time together because I think that would also free up a lot of options down the lineup and it would really help Horvat maybe reach a new high in point totals and really help Miller maybe have that break in ice time and not have to worry so much about how much you're using him. Like, I just think Hoaglander being a viable option would open up a lot of other things in the roster. I, I'm all for 
giving Hoaglander the opportunity to prove that, hey, that last season was a blip. I've learned. I can be a contributor. I can fit with Elias Pettersson. I have that skill. I've shown it in the past. The problem comes, like, they have seven good wingers, right? Mm -hmm. There's only six spots for wingers in the top three lines. So if right now the assumption has been Hoaglander, either probably going to be in Abbotsford or on the fourth line or maybe in the press box uh, to start the season, right, just because of how it shakes out. So my question then becomes, well, if Hoaglander moves up the lineup to play with Elias Pettersson, who's who's sliding down? Who's going down to fill that spot? Probably Pearson. In my mind. In my, and I know he's... I know you're a big Pearson guy. <laughs> I am. I am. How I, dare you? I think it's okay to have Pearson on the fourth line. And then if your team is struggling, if Horvat or Miller are out of sync with whoever their winger is, you move Pearson back up. Because you know he's going to work with them. Yeah. I just... When I look at the wingers on the team, I don't think Hoaglander fits a fourth line role. And that's why, look, if he doesn't make the top six, top nine out of camp, I'm all for starting him in Abbotsford just so he has that time right. on a top line. But if he does, like the the only guy I really see fitting on a fourth line is Pearson. The other thing, though, is the fourth line. I, I, I hear what you're saying about, okay, does, can Hoaglander work on a fourth line? I think the way the Canucks forward group is going to be used this year, I don't know what the fourth line needs to even have that specific style of play because this isn't going to be a top six, bottom six team. Right. You know what I mean? This is going to be a top nine and a fourth line. You're going to see really even in all likelihood, pretty significant usage for the top three lines. And then the bottom line will kind of get whatever's left. So I think you can kind of have that hodgepodge fourth line with, you know, the reliable center and Curtis Lazar and then whoever else, uh, gets on his wings. That doesn't concern me as much with Hoaglander and with Tanner Pearson. I, I mean, look, I hear you, right? He would be the obvious guy. He's not. We, we've talked about Tanner Pearson a lot. People are, why is he in the top six? Why is he in the top six? Well, he's in the top six because he works well with whoever he plays with. And I thought one of the Canucks' best lines for a span last year when they really started getting going under Bruce Boudreau was Tanner Pearson with JT Miller and Brock Besser. Now, you could call that the first line and you say what why how can you have Tanner Pearson on the first line well because they produced really well together yeah he just worked sometimes guys just work and honestly if we were to kind of map out how do I want the Canucks to start the season I might want to see that trio together again I thought they really had something together so I understand the temptation to say look he's the veteran he's not that exciting he's defensively reliable plug him on the fourth line but the the floor is so high with Tanner Pearson. You know exactly what you're going to get. There's no risk. Coaches love throwing him out there. Guys like playing with him because he knows how to he knows how to contribute. He knows how to keep up and help higher end players. I don't know. I think you're missing an opportunity to a certain extent if you have Tanner Pearson playing that that down in the lineup. I I, I can't believe I'm saying it because <laughs> you're missing out that's on been, Tanner that's Pearson. That's been the dream of Canucks fans to move him down the lineup, but. I think he's earned. He's earned that look with better players. You say, like, I get what you're saying when you say you're missing an opportunity with Pearson on the fourth line, but I think you're missing an opportunity. I get that. The other way, if he's not on the fourth line, right? Like, I I understand the that Hoaglander could fit on a fourth line or whoever could fit on a fourth line because they're not really going to be a typical bottom six line, I guess. Yeah. Bottom six team. Well, I think you have other, you're going to have other lines that you can, you know, put out there for a, a big defensive zone draw, right? That can match up against the other teams. You're not going to be relying on your fourth line to do that in the same way. No, it's just going to be a line that has to eat up some minutes yeah. every now and then. 
But I just wonder if you're limiting... Because in the end, what do we want Hoaglander to, to be, to develop into? Like a top six yep. winger that can put up points. I just don't know if playing him with Lazar and, let's say, Dickinson is going to lend itself well to him developing in that way. And that's why maybe the argument is, hey, you start to start him in Abbotsford, see how it works out there. I just want to see, at least for, for a stretch, and again, if he earns it, extended time with Pedersen, maybe they're not playing the most out of any line, but extended time with Pedersen. And I think last year, if I remember correctly, a line that had some success, wasn't really burying their chances, but had some success was... Hoaglander, Pedersen, Potkolz. Yep. And that's when Bruce was like, well, they're friends. I'm going to put them together. And that was really early on in Pedersen turning his season around. Yeah. And that that trio looked really good together. So, hey, I, I hope that Niels Hoaglander does come in and kind of demand this type of opportunity. My other concern with it, though, with moving him up the lineup is you start to kind of build out, okay, who can you put with Miller to get the most out of him? Who can you put with Elias Pettersson that's going to complement his game? You also need to have at least one line, and it's probably going to be with Bo Horvath as a center, that you feel really good about putting as a matchup unit, right? And the thing with the Canucks is, as deep as their forward group is, they also have a fair number of forwards that I'm not sure the coaching staff would really trust in that role. And I would think of you know, Andre Kuzmenko, obviously first-time guy, skill player coming over to the NHL. I would think of Niels Hoaglander in that role. And I think you could maybe even put Connor Garland as a smaller player in yeah. that role as well. So if you move Hoaglander up into the top nine, you're either going to be in a situation where one of those guys has to be on the kind of matchup role with Horvat, matchup line with Horvat, or you've got two of those more undersized players on the same line, which again, I'm not sure the coach, how crazy the coaching staff is going to be about that. Yeah. I would say my ideal, like, look, and this is if everything pans out, but my ideal top nine, I would say going into the year would be Hoaglander, Pedersen, Podkolz. And as I mentioned, I would like to see Mikheyev with Horvat because that's a, like, that's it, it kind sense. of the ideal perfect winger for both. Yeah, Horvats. exactly. Fast, defensively reliable, forecheck, all of that. It's so easy to picture that working yeah. really well. And then I would, I would probably put Kuzmenko with them just because Mikheyev and Horvat are both shoot-first guys. Kuzmenko, at least in Russia, was more of a setup guy. And I know there's been some talk about a shot as well. But do you think... I don't I know how he is defensively. I can see that working, but I'm just, you know, they're playing... Let's say they're playing uh, Edmonton, right? Connor McDavid's out there. Okay, Bo Horvat, sure. Mikheyev, Sure. Are they going to throw Kuzmenko out there in that situation? You know what I mean? I'm not sure. I think they're going to look for somebody else. And I mean, you can always switch it up game by game too, right? But yeah. I just that that gives you the option to load up your top six too. Because who would Miller be left with? Garland and Besser. Yep. And look, if those three can gain chemistry, that's a really really solid. Look, it's not going to be amazing defensively. And hey, maybe instead of Kuzmenko being on Horvat's wing, you move Besser to Horvat's wing because. Besser has really improved his defensive game over the past few seasons as well, and I would say he's at least defensively above average. Not amazing, but above average, yeah. and they can go out and match up. And look, anytime you play against McDavid, it's going to be a tough matchup. Well, sure. I would at least say they could hold their own. And hey, maybe you discover that Andre Kuzmenko can hold his own alongside Bo Horvat, and then that gives you a lot of other options. I think the thing that this discussion really illustrates, and especially again, now that you are planning around JT Miller, not just for this season, but for the long term as well, it, 
there's a lot of potential options, which is ultimately a good thing, right? There there have been times not that long ago in, in Canucks history where it was, okay, these are clearly our five best forwards, so it has to line up like this, and then maybe we'll scrounge up a, another top six guy. Marcus Granlin. Yeah. And now it's, okay, you have a bunch, you have probably 10 players that you can make a legitimate case to be in the top six, right? Mm-hmm. That is, it's a good place to be in, but it's also, it's going to be really important for Bruce Boudreaux and the coaching staff to use training camp in the preseason, even early in the regular season to tinker a little bit and find, okay, what are our best lines? Who works together? Because I can't remember this much uncertainty on who are the top players going to play with, right? Like, there's almost no combination mm-hmm. that of Miller, Horvat. Patterson down the middle and then line mates that would surprise me at this point yeah it's totally up in the air I do think you if you if something's not working at first I do think you have to give it some extended run as well like mm-hmm. assuming those players still deserve that chance but I I don't know I would like to see because we saw it under green a lot the, something yeah. wouldn't work for a period yep. and all of a sudden it was all switched so I'd like to see some more extended time given to potential line combinations that could work yeah, no doubt about it. All right, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Keep your thoughts coming in, whether it's about line combinations, other questions you have about the Canucks now that JT Miller has signed. Uh, Patrick Alvin spoke yesterday, talked a little bit about the Miller deal, had some other interesting things to say about the Canucks as well. We'll get into some of that next. It's Sportsnet Today. Jamie Dodd, Josh Elliott Wolf on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Mambo number five. Listening to Sportsnet today on the official home of the Canucks. Oh no! Oh no! I knew it. I knew it was coming. Well, kind of. I didn't know. I'd forgotten. You set me up. Yes. I had forgotten that it was coming, and then I was like, "Oh, right!" When I heard it. Mamba number five. Is there a Mamba number one through four? I don't know. They weren't as popular. I guess (laughs) never. They never broke through. Imagine those, though. But yes, uh, our guy producer Ben. Started off the show with Will Smith's Miami, one of my least favorite songs of all time. Unknown to him, so to be fair. And then I also volunteered that Mambo Number 5 was uh, probably number two on that list. This one was calculated. This one was calculated as well. I will say uh, my um, my wife texted me after that to say that she loves both of those songs. So I hope she got to hear a little so bit of Mambo Number 5. I'm in winning the car. with her. In the car, yes. I'm, I think it's all three of us against uh, Jamie on Miami. Yes, we all love is. Miami. Everyone else loves Miami yeah. except me. I think it is dreadful. <laughs> Dread- dreadful. It's just a dreadful song. Will Smith's worst popular song. I Maybe. think. I mean, probably. <laughs> I don't know. I still love it. But they're all great. <laughs> yeah, they all hit. I don't know what to tell you. Whoa! It came back in. <laughs> yeah, a little, a little. I uh, got back in there. Uh, we'll see what other horrible, horrible songs we can come up with throughout the course of the show. By the way, Brendan Bachelor. Uh, is uh, going to join us at 10 o'clock. The voice of the Canucks. We're getting close. I looked on our, our internal 650 schedule, Josh, which, by the way, finally up for next week, uh, You know, which hadn't been the case for a while. So I, I now know the hours I'm working next week, which is really nice. <laughs> is it a good one? Is it a good I mean, week? It's fine. <laughs> uh, I'm away, so I yeah. didn't even really care that it wasn't up. Um, But uh, towards the end of next week, 
Vancouver Canucks versus the Edmonton Oilers in Penticton is on the schedule. So get pumped. Ben, Brennan Bachelor is going to have to do some work for once yeah, around I here mean, coming up at the end of next week. He's, uh, we're putting him to work. I don't know if he's actually going there or just calling off a stream. And We will see. We'll, we'll find out. We'll never know. <laughs> We will find out at some point. Maybe we can ask Patch. Uh, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line again. Brendan Batchelor will join us at 10 o'clock coming up. We asked you uh, in the first segment, now that JT Miller is signed, what are some of the biggest questions you have about the Vancouver Canucks? And I thought this one was an interesting one from Minor Matt in Abbotsford. It says, how does the JT Miller deal affect Bruce Boudreaux's contract extension? And... I don't know that there's a direct connection or, you know, now that JT Miller is signed, it means this specifically for Bruce Boudreaux. But I do think that is, you know, the fact that Bruce Boudreaux is in the last year of his deal and there was the much publicized not getting an extension at the end of last year and some of the comments from management about how they wanted to see his coaching style change or what they wanted him to work on. That's going to be one of the most interesting subplots of this season. And I wanted to play a clip back from Patrick Alvin when he spoke to the media yesterday, because I think it gives some, some interesting con uh, context on the Bruce Boudreaux story. And this is Patrick Alvin talking about what he expects from the team and specifically looking for them to take a big step forward this year. There is a lot of work. Uh, I don't think you just uh, go from being a non-playoff team to be a Stanley cup winner. I think this is a process over time that, uh, I think in today's game, you want to be. Our goal is to be a, a very competitive, competitive team over time, and and by being that, we need to make a big step this year. And and uh, and I believe that the players are uh, prepared, and their mindset is that uh, they're ready to come in here for day one training camp. That's Canucks general manager Patrick Alvin speaking yesterday, and there's a couple of interesting things I want to get into there, but specifically him saying that they have to take a big step forward this year. And that, that's not surprising. They've they've rolled it back with this team. They've invested in this team by signing JT Miller. They've given them a vote of confidence. Obviously, the bare minimum standard is make the playoffs. And that would be a significant step forward. And probably they're hoping for even more of a step forward than that, as much as he also says there's still a lot of work to do. But my question is, what happens if we don't see that step forward? Because... This team was already going to be pretty difficult to unravel, as I think Jim Rutherford has said. Now it's going to be even harder because you've signed Brock Besser to a multi-year deal. You've signed JT Miller to a multi-year deal. You've added Ilya Mikheyev on a on a deal with term. I would expect still Bo Horvat to get signed. Quinn Hughes is under contract long-term. You go down the list, Thatcher Demko is still under contract long-term. Those are just your core guys. Then you talk about some of the non-core players. OEL is not going to be easy to move. Tucker right? Pullman. Tucker Pullman. There's a lot of guys that it's not necessarily as simple as, oh, you know, it didn't work out this year. We're going to flip some players and, and remake this team. We saw this summer how difficult that is to do. So if there isn't a step forward, what is going to be the outcome? And to bring it back to Minor Matt's question, you know, how does the JT Miller trade affect the Bruce Boudreaux, or, or sorry, the J I'm so used to saying a J.T. Miller trade. The J.T. <laughs> Miller signing the extension affected potential Bruce Boudreaux extension. Well, there's always a cliche in sports, right, that it's easier to change the coach than it is to change the players. 
But that's especially true in this scenario, where <laughs> yes. the coach isn't signed beyond next year, and this Canucks team is incredibly difficult to break apart as a, from a roster standpoint. So I think this is kind of setting up for a situation where, as much as Bruce Boudreaux is incredibly popular with the fan base here, and deservedly so based on what he accomplished last season, if things go haywire again, if we don't see that significant step forward that Patrick Alvin says he's looking for this year, I'm not sure what else you can trade other than the coach at this point. Yeah, I mean, next season there are things that open up. And I, I, what I will say is I think Bruce is, as far as extension goes, like I think Bruce is in Vancouver as long as the team keeps trending upwards and he doesn't want to retire. Like It might be Bruce saying, yep. hey, it was a good run. I'd like to settle down for a bit. Who knows? But as far as him maybe being let go if the season doesn't go well, like that does seem like the simple solu- solution, but I don't know if that – like would that convince fans that the team is going to be better? No, it's going to be a tough sell. Yeah. And I was doing the uh, the morning show with uh, with Izzy a couple of weeks ago, and or maybe it was last week. I don't know. I think it was last week. It was last week. <laughs> <laughs> And that was obviously before the JT Miller news had dropped. But one of the things we were talking about was if things don't get off to a good start this year and you're just kind of power ranking who's going to come in for the most blame from fans, Bruce Boudreaux Bruce Boudreaux's at the bottom of the list, right? Yeah, like players are getting players blamed before Bruce. Are, absolutely. But now management has put themselves in a situation where they're committed to this group. Mm-hmm. It would be extraordinarily difficult to make significant changes to this core unless you're just doing – that you know, proverbial full-on multi-year teardown rebuild, which I don't think there's any appetite for for management or from ownership. And I don't even like it. Doesn't make sense to do it, right? No, you I don't got think so. Hughes, you got Demko. Yep. The only way I could see that happening is if they is if they have another bad year. And look, I'm not saying he's going to do this, but let's say Pedersen's like, you know what? I don't really see my future here. Right. I would like to leave, and then maybe it makes sense. But yeah, like the only pieces you can trade after this year are Myers, Pearson, Dickinson, maybe. Mm-hmm. And even that, like, what are you getting back? No, that that's just, you're not, you're opening up salary cap flexibility, which is really important, mm-hmm. but you're not reshaping the direction of your franchise, right? You're not, oh man, now we have all these futures and all these extra picks to work with. Basically what you're doing is saying, we can extend some of the guys we already have in house and maybe dip into the free agent market. But even that, dipping into the free agent market, often not the smartest, best way to build a team. So, it's an interesting situation where the easiest option for management, if things go sideways this year, would be to replace the coach, and probably at the end of the season. I, I would be. I think things would have to go very, be very, very dire. It would have for to be in worse season. than the beginning yes. of last year. So we're talking after this season, right? But let's say the team misses the playoffs. That's obviously not a step forward. I think there's obviously going to be a desire for change. There, we're in a situation now where the easiest thing for management to do is replace the coach, but that would also probably be the least popular potential move <laughs> yeah. from a fan base standpoint because the fans are still going to be on Bruce Boudreaux's side. It's still going to be Bruce. There it is. He's chance. the new guy. Yeah. The players have been here for a long time. We've seen this core. If they don't get it done again, I don't think it's going to be. People aren't going to say, "Oh man, the coach let them down." They're going to say the players had the right coach and they still couldn't get it done. And I think the players understand that it's on them this year. Like. Look, they got the coaching change. They got the managing change. If you're a player, you look at the team and you're like, hey, you know what? What hasn't been changed? It's me. Us. Yeah. So let's fix this. And that's, I think, part of it, part of why Miller's back, part of why the Canucks added this offseason is I do think there was maybe, and I'm not reporting anything or whatever, but I think there was some pressure from the players to be like, hey, we 
had a good end to last season. We want to see what we can do with a full year. And I think Alvin and Rutherford were probably receptive to that. Being, like, obviously they were receptive to that because they didn't trade away anybody this offseason. And I, I don't know. There's a lot of pressure on the players this year, but you're right. There's not much you can do. The only thing you might be able to do, aside from Myers, Pearson, Dickinson, would be if you don't extend Horvat and you say, okay, he's going to be the big guy that we move yeah. because this season has fallen apart. But yeah. even then, he's probably going to get re-signed. Like, if I had to make a bet, he's getting re-signed before the season starts. That would be my bet as well. Uh, Bob and Nanaimo text in, this station and the entire Vancouver media has consistently asked what if things go wrong, but not even once, and I mean not even a single time, have I heard any media person in Vancouver say what if things go well. I'm getting sick of the negativity. That's not true. We have, we talk about what will happen if things go well all the time. I just what talked if Elias about Pedersen, Hoaglander working. Yeah, out. what if Elias Pettersson scores 90 points this year? What if Vasily Podkolzin has a breakthrough? What if Andre Kuzmenko is a clear-cut top six player? We talk about that all the time. And to answer your question from a coaching perspective, Bob, what if things go well this year? Well, then guess what? Bruce Boudreaux is probably going to be back. That's the answer. Yeah. We know what the answer is. That's again, why we're not spending a lot of time on that question. Yeah, again, he's probably as long as the team keeps taking steps, I really think he's just going to be the coach until there's he wants to leave. Or unless they kind of stagnate a bit and maybe they should be challenging for cups and they're just not. But even then, again, like there's no pressure on Bruce this year. Aside from, hey, change your systems, make sure management sees what they want from you, and then go from there. Yeah, you're absolutely right. He is playing or coaching with the least pressure in this situation. The other, the players have a lot more pressure, and I would say the front office has more pressure as well to prove that they were right, uh, for the team to prove that they were right to bring this core group of players back. 650-650 this is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Keep your thoughts coming in. What will happen uh, if... The team doesn't take that step forward that Patrick Alvin says he is looking for this year. One other quick clip I wanted to play from Patrick Alvin yesterday. We were all expecting the team to try to open up a big chunk of salary cap flexibility this summer. Didn't happen. Now, that doesn't mean it can't happen in the future. doesn't mean it won't happen at some other time, but it didn't happen this summer. Here's what Patrick Alvin had to say about trying to clear cap space. I think you could say that and looking around the league and, uh, but also, uh, you know, the cost of uh, getting rid of contracts as well. Uh, and uh, just uh, the hard part where, where we have uh, uh, players signed beyond a year, it makes it harder to, to make those moves. So that's Patrick Alvin and not, you know, earth-shaking stuff, right? Obviously, we saw that to clear salary cap space, not just for the Canucks, but for other teams around the league was very difficult the teams that had salary cap space were charging a lot to do it. And as Alvin said towards the end there, especially when you're talking about guys with term, right? If it's a player for just this year, okay, that's maybe one thing. If it's a guy who has two or three seasons left on his deal, that becomes much more significant. And I do wonder if that does, you know, because in the first clip we played where he's saying they need to take a step forward, he's also saying there's a lot of work to do, right? Mm-hmm. Is that work still about reshaping the roster or is it more about internal improvement? Because I am wondering, when are we going to see this salary dump process really kick off for the Canucks? And I I guess maybe what Alvin is hinting at is, okay, as we started to get into the final year of some of these deals, it'll open up a lot more flexibility for us to actually move some of them off of our books. Because right now the only player in the final year of their deal is Bo Horvat. As far as like worthwhile players that would get something on the market. I did want to mention... uh, 
breaking news reportedly from uh, Ian Mendez of The Athletic. Tim Stutzla signing for eight years, uh, 8.35 AAV in Ottawa. So another big move. There you go. Ottawa committing some salary cap again. Mm -hmm. What does it mean for Pedersen? What does it mean for Pedersen? Well, I mean, I think it's, and we've seen this a few times this offseason. And I mean, even you could point to the, the Josh Norris contract, right? The Tage Thompson deal. Teams are willing to make these big salary commitments to young players faster and faster, right? Yeah. They're really willing to bet on potential. And with with Stutzla, you know, the interesting thing is, I mean, I think this is more than anything anticipating the salary cap going up, right? Because I don't know, you know, so he's going to be making $8.4 million for eight years. Realistically, as a winger, to be worth $9 million or $10 million or something in this salary cap environment is extraordinarily difficult. So I don't know if he's, you know, for them to get get surplus value on the deal, I don't know if he's going to get to that level. If the salary cap goes up in years, you know, two, three and beyond of that contract, though, then maybe we start to get into a world where, you know, the top wingers in the league are making 11, 12 million dollars at some point. And you look at 8.4 as a bargain for Tim Stutzler. But I think more than anything, it's just another sign that. If you are a high pedigree player who shows a little bit of production earlier in your career, play, teams are much more willing to bet long term on you at big money than they were even five years ago. Definitely, and I do wonder as well as far as paying a winger that much. Like he he has played center. I wonder if they maybe want to try him out at center long term. But I don't know. You also signed Norris to kind of be that guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but. It's it's really tough because I think if the Canucks and bringing it back to the Canucks, if they had been in a position where they had more cap space when Pedersen and Hughes contracts expired and were due for their second deals, I think they would have bet on potential as well, like they did with Hughes. Well, like, they should have. Yeah, I, in an ideal world, they want, they go long term with Pedersen off yes. of his ELC. Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. think there's any question about that. And at least with Hughes, you got the six years. Mm-hmm. So it's not as if it's a bridge deal. Now, maybe again, in an ideal world, you go eight, you get it all the way to eight. That's probably would have been better. Certainly with Pedersen, there's no doubt they would have liked to go. If they didn't have the salary cap situation, you go eight years there. Yeah. It is it is interesting because we're seeing this wave of players cash in coming off of their ELC. What's it going to look like for a player like Elias Pedersen coming off of a bridge deal, right? And I think he's still in a position as a center who's already produced at a very high level as as much as there's criticism and complaints and questions and all that from some fans here in the market, he has produced at a very high, very consistent level for a young player in the NHL. And if he sets himself up, right, if he is able to recreate his form from the last half of last year over these next two years, he's really over this season because he's eligible for an extension after this year. And I think if it, the Canucks are probably going to jump at the opportunity to try to re-sign him before he puts two really good years together. Yes. If he has a good year this but year. But it's not necessarily going to be that simple because if Elias Pettersson's feeling great about his game, has a great year this year, you know, at a point per game, all that. Cap's going up. Is he going to be, how inclined is he going to be to to sign rather than seeing, hey, maybe if I go again, I, I can bump my price up even more. So it has the potential to be a tricky situation. And I, I think the Stutzel deal is just another example. If you have that upside... You're going to get paid, and Elias Pettersson probably is going to put himself uh, in a position to get paid as well. Ottawa, all of a sudden, we are not used to this, but they've got 
Still a ton of years left on the Thomas Shabbat deal at eight million per season. Brady Kachuk is going to be making over eight point is is making over eight million a season for the long term. Josh Norris just under eight million per season for long term, and now Tim Stutzla coming in uh, at eight point four million on an eight year extension, which won't even kick in till next year. So we're looking, you know, past twenty thirty for Tim Stutzla. In Ottawa. That's a, it's a bizarre, bizarre scenario for the Ottawa Senators to be splashing cash like this. Yeah, they got sick of the, hey, he's just going to leave after his ELC jokes, which is fair, which is fair. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did get a question in the Dunbar Lumber text line. Troy the Bread Guy, Ottawa's future Vancouver's, what would you choose? I, like, <sighs> off the top, I'm like, you know what? Vancouver has the goalie already. They, yeah. they have the number one defenseman. They have the number one center. But also... Like Ottawa's pretty close to that. They don't have the goalie, but they have a bunch of guys at forward that are are younger, already locked up. I don't know. Like I, I might lean Ottawa now that they've they've kind of committed to these guys long term. Yeah, I it's a it's a close question, right? And it really depends on what do you think the gap is between, if any, the gap is between you know Elias Pettersson and Brady Kachuk, Josh Norris. Tim Stutzla, right? I would take Elias Pettersson over all of those players. Yes. But how big do you think that gap is? Because I'm always going to lean to the team that has the elite talent in place, right? Mm -hmm. But, again, as you said, Pettersson's not locked up long-term. I like Quinn Hughes more than any of their defensemen. Even, you know, they have the prospect like Jake Sanderson. I still take Quinn Hughes over any of them. But they have more of their young core locked up, and they obviously have more future flexibility, prospects, picks, all of that to work with. So I think it's at least a fair argument uh, to be made. The other one uh, comes in. uh, Brendan and Anaimo says bad teams, bad teams are much more willing to sign young players to large long-term deals. Buffalo and Ottawa need to pay the good players more in order to hold on to them. There's probably some amount of truth to that, but the thing is they all count as contract comparisons for other players coming off their deals. And also I would point to the St. Louis blues going long-term with, Robert Thomas, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think that's a situation where they say, oh, we're St. Louis. We we have to give this guy a deal right now to make sure he stays here. If you believe in the guy, you pay the guy. So maybe there is a part of that with teams like Ottawa and Buffalo, but I don't think it would have... You can't just seal it off and say, oh, no, 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 that's just bad teams. We don't play by those rules. Every team is involved in the same ecosystem, in the same economics, and it's going to have an impact elsewhere in the league. Especially when... I know we're saying Ottawa, Ottawa and Buffalo are have been on another level of bad, but have the Canucks been a good team? Like, do they deserve to get a hometown discount? I don't think so. Like, yes, they drafted Pedersen. They developed him. Same with most of the guys that are coming, like Horvat, for example, coming up for a new contract. But have they done anything in the years that those guys have been here to show that, hey, take a little bit less money and it will – will be able to surround you with talent. And look, Alvin and Rutherford are completely separate from Benning. There's probably more belief in those two than there was in the previous regime. But again, like it's what have you done for me lately? And I I don't know if the Canucks have done enough to show that they're not a bad team per se. Well, the best way to get those team-friendly deals is to win because that makes makes guys want to stick around, right? And it's also to as much as you can try to enforce that idea of the internal salary cap, which has also been an issue for the Canucks. Now we'll see, do they have any purchase with the JT Miller deal and trying to kind of enforce that? Who knows? That's something to be answered down the road, but you're right. It comes down to winning. If you create a winning environment where guys are convinced that, Hey, this team's on the right path. This team's going to be competitive year, year in, year out. You can get 
those team-friendly deals much easier, much easier than uh, than if you're a struggling team. And this text comes in. Uh, we'll end on this one for this segment. Senators win the 2022 NHL Silly Season. I, again, I can't remember a run of good news for the Ottawa Senators <laughs> like this in like, recent memory. Too. Yeah, I'd, like really legitimately good news. League-wide people being like, you know what? We like the, this. The Senators yeah. did good things. Oh my gosh. I they kept just... waiting for them to do a bad thing after <laughs> the good things, but they didn't do it. It wasn't that long ago, but they traded for Travis Hamannick. And now, look at them now. <laughs> look <laughs> yeah. at how they're going now. Uh, all right. More on the way. Brendan Batchelor, voice of the Canucks here on Sportsnet 650, is going to join us. Coming up here in just a few minutes, uh, lots more coming up in the show as well. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. It's Sportsnet Today, Jamie Dodd, Josh Elliott-Wolf on Sportsnet 650. You're listening to Sportsnet Today on the official home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. This song's alright. I have nothing in particular against this song. I do not like this song. I mean, I'm not saying it's great, <laughs> but it, it's not on my hate it's a, it's list. It's a tough day right now. It's a tough day. <laughs> I mean, you lean into it being yeah. a tough day. Did you expect this one to hit? I don't know. Oh. It was recommended. You're all over the place. It's, uh, I mean, look, it's... I'm not. I'm not saying it's a work of art or anything here. Uh, it's Sportsnet today. Sportsnet 650. We're we're trying to play the worst songs we can come up with. We started with, uh, or at least for me, anyways. We started with Will Smith's Miami. Great song. Moved on. Terrible song. Moved on to Mambo Number no. Five. Also terrible. Uh, what's the name of this song that we just played? By the way, this is Angel by Shaggy. Angel by Shaggy. Any Shaggy song, I am out on. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, we've had some. We'll get to Brendan Batchelor momentarily, by the way, but we got to get this in first. Uh, we've had some uh, some suggestions, some some questions about songs we like or don't like. Somebody asked us, "What about Tub Thumping" by Chumbawamba? See, Tub Thumping, I'm never gonna like put it on and play it. I don't know if I know what that song. What? Is. Oh I, my well, gosh! Like, I might know it if you I would. Heard you it. would recognize it if uh, if we played it. But there's enough nostalgia for me. It was a big one hit wonder, probably right. before your time. There's enough nostalgia for me that I can uh, I can enjoy it. Again, I'm not saying it's a good song. not saying I would ever voluntarily play it. But if I were to hear it out somewhere, I was like, oh, that's nice. Tub thumping. Uh, Jock Jam's Mega Mix. Have you heard that one? Uh, I feel it's like It's one I've that's like all it. of the classic yes. arena rock ones stitched together. Yes. You know okay, what I mean? I do know that one. Yeah. yeah. It's all right. I think I played it on a show before. Yeah, I can and see I that. And I was like, what are we doing here? I can't believe, cannot believe. That you don't know the song Tub Thumping. I, you said you said Tub Thumping, and what is it? The Chumba- band is Chumbawamba. Yeah, okay, you expect me to like know that? It's anyways. Well, we'll play it. We'll play it later in the show for you, Josh, and see if uh, see if you uh, recognize it. Uh, Sportsnet today, Sportsnet six fifty. Brendan Bachelor, voice of the Canucks, joins us here. It's Jamie Dodd and Josh Elliott Wolf. Batch, Josh has never heard of Tub Thumping before. Come on. Really? I I might know it if I heard it. I don't know. We're talking about like worst songs, most hated songs of all time. And somebody texted in tub thumping and I read it and Josh was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, wait. So, oh, it's the get down, get up again. Yes. I do know that song. Yes. I thought you did. I thought you would. Yeah, exactly. See, I wasn't. Tub thumping. uh, I don't even think they say tub thumping ever in the, the course of the song. So. I could understand some confusion there. But yes, it's the I get knocked down, I get back up again. So. There you go. 
Okay. So we got it. We're covered. Yeah, I was I was racking my brain for a lyric that had tub thumping. In it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, so batch. I mean, it's it's kind of funny how it worked out, right? It's Labor Day weekend, right before Labor Day, the Miller signing. Uh, breaks and then we talk to you get to hear from JT Miller and Patrick Alvin yesterday and all of a sudden it, it feels a little bit like hockey season huh yeah winter is coming uh, yes even though it's still warm outside it uh, you know uh, for me certainly in this line of work it often feels like a switch gets flipped after Labor Day but uh, you know especially with the the Miller contract coming out sort of Friday afternoon uh, and then, you know, being back at eight rinks yesterday and talking to Patrick Alvin and talking to JT Miller on Zoom, it's it's basically hockey season. We've got the young stars coming up in, yep. what, 10 days from now. So uh, it's just about time to drop the puck again. Yeah, it sure is. And uh, as you said, in this line of work, always an exciting time. I mean, we'll just start pretty basic, Patch. What was your reaction to the, the big long-term JT Miller extension? Well, I'm of two minds on the contract. The first is that when you compare the contract to other contracts that have been signed on the market or similar players, it's a good contract in terms of, of the money they're, they're spending the cap hit for a player of Miller's caliber for a player that, you know, was a 99 point player last season. So, you know, if you look at it in sort of an overall NHL market value, it's, it's a good contract for the Canucks. It's more their cap situation and their competitive window that have me, maybe not questioning it, but wondering about how the contract's going to age, wondering about how it's going to fit into the rest of the salary structure on this team, wondering um, if they're going to be able to, to compete at the level that you would hope in the window that is the first three or four years of that contract. Because, you know, we see these contracts signed all the time for players that are, you know, 30 or approaching 30. And generally speaking, they they don't age well. Now, you know, they don't all age as poorly as, say, the Louis Erickson contract did, right? There, there are players who sign at around 30, are very productive for three or four or sometimes even five seasons. And then their game drops off, you know, more towards the latter end of the contract. So, you know, right now I, I'm sort of struggling to see how it makes sense for the Canucks at the moment. But I also understand that, A, you know, there are plenty more moves that, that could be made to free up some cap space in the future. Although, you know, we, we kind of expected some of those moves were going to happen this summer and they didn't. Um, so, so that's a, a key factor there is just because JT Miller is signed today and the roster is the way it is today doesn't mean it'll be that way tomorrow or next week or next year. So it's, it's not like it's an ur- urgent situation where they do have time to set their priorities, decide what they're going to do. But what I do think the Miller contract indicates is that they will have to about maybe not a core player, but someone who's on the edges of that core to be able to afford to keep the guys that they've got right now. And as far as moving out a player, I kind of, you look at the roster and the the big position of strength is is the winger spot, but uh, if you had to make a choice on, let's, you're able to move out a player and get whatever their value is in return, is there a player you look at that kind of makes the most sense to move? Is it is it Garland, or or do you just kind of try to 
move someone like Pearson and not really too worry too much about what the return is. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that is going to play out and shake out, I would imagine, based on how things go at training camp, you know, who who has a good camp, who looks like they're set up for a good spot on the roster and who maybe gets left behind. But to me, it's, it's a three-player conversation uh, that, you know, is those two guys that you discussed with, with Pearson and Garland. And then you could arguably throw Neil Toglander into that conversation as well. Um, as a guy that, you know, had a down year last year and, and certainly has had some injury issues as well. But that said, he's a young talent and you are always wary of, of giving up on, on young players too early because, you know, we've seen in the past how that can burn teams where they move on from a guy and he gets a change of scenery and a fresh start and, and goes on to be a great player elsewhere. So, you know, I, those are those are three guys that, that certainly could be in that conversation because of the winger depth that you have. You could afford to, to move on from one of those guys uh, and and not have it be too much of an issue. The other thing is, you know, uh, I know a lot of people are excited about Andre Kuzmenko coming in, but uh, there is a world where on his one-year contract he doesn't perform well or they don't see him as a long-term fit, so then you don't extend him beyond this season and it could work out that way. I, I guess my main point is that as much as I understand some of the concern about, um, you know, the, the cap space or lack thereof now that they've signed Miller, that there are a variety of ways that they could hypothetically, um, you know, move out a winger or, or create a little bit of room to try and upgrade other areas of the roster. And certainly I would imagine the defense is at the top of that list. The other really interesting thing about the Miller signing is obviously it just it, it, it makes it in very certain what the stakes are for this year, or at least what the expectations are, right? You know, this is not a situation now where we're, oh, well, maybe the team will take a step back in order to take two steps forward the following season. This is a team that is expected to win now, win this year. Is it just as simple as it, it has to be a playoff year at the very least for the Canucks this year, Batch? Yeah, I think so. Um, and... You know, when, when you when you make a signing like that, when you, as of right now, and again, you know, Patrick Alvin sort of had a, a nod and a wink yesterday when asked about, you know, if his defensive group in particular was going to be the group he goes into the season with. So uh, I guess we'll have to wait and see if, if he's working on something that, that could tweak things before training camp. But you've essentially returned the roster from last season that played so well down the stretch under Bruce Boudreaux. And, you know, some of that will be due to market factors that you weren't able to move off of players that you weren't able to shift cap space. But, you know, if I'm a player in that room, I see that to a certain extent as a vote of confidence that there is some level of belief anyway from the management level, you know, to what degree that belief is, you know, uh, you'd have to talk to Patrick Alvin and Jim Rutherford and they probably wouldn't give you a straight answer um, at that. But anyway, this they're returning the same roster that played so well down the stretch that was on a playoff pace. The expectation has to be the playoffs. Uh, and, you know, especially for Bruce Boudreaux coming in, he's just got the one year here. There's going to be a lot of pressure on him to win and to win now to secure uh, another contract and to stay in Vancouver beyond the end of this season. So, you know, that, that to me is the context you have to put this season in as we get set to, you know, kick off training camp here in a few weeks is the expectation 
the bare minimum expectation has to be a playoff spot and anything less than that should not be seen as a successful season. And let's be honest, it wouldn't be a successful season with where this group has come, how much they've grown, whether it was the bubble or whether it was how well they played down the stretch under Boudreaux last year. Um, you know, that has to be the expectation. Whether they'll be able to do it or not, that's a completely different conversation. But, you know, certainly with the, the way the roster is constructed right now, that's what you, you should be expecting if you're in that dressing room getting ready to, to put on the blue and green and step out onto the ice in a few weeks. Do you think this team has what it takes to be a playoff team? Because when I look at the division, I mean, Calgary, they moved out some pieces, but they didn't get as much worse as some people might have thought. I think Edmonton got a bit better with their goaltending situation. Um, Vegas won't be as injured. LA, I think, maybe got a bit better too, but their goaltending is a bit of a question. Same with Vegas. Do you think that in this division, the Canucks will be a playoff team or should be a playoff team? Yeah, I, I don't think it's going to be easy. Let's put it that way. Um, it, it is possible. You know, On paper, I think they could be a playoff team, but at the same time, I think, you know, much like any team season, a lot of things have to go right for you and things have to go wrong for someone else. So, for example, last year, going into the season, everybody sort of had Vegas penciled in as the Pacific Division winner, and then we'll see where everything shakes down after that. Of course, they had all the injuries, uh, especially in goal, that really affected their year. They don't make the playoffs. Meanwhile, the L.A. Kings have, you know, sort of a, a, a year that was better than many people expected, and they find their way into the postseason, and, and they give the Oilers a pretty good run in that series in the first round. So that's sort of how I see the Canucks playoff picture is, you know, their roster isn't improved enough that I say absolutely 100% they're a playoff team but it's not such a bad roster that I say there's no chance they make the playoffs either. What has to happen for them is a lot of things have to go right for them. So Demko has to come back and have the year that he had last year again. Miller has to come back and continue to be a high-level producer. Pedersen has to take a step. Besser has to take a step. They have to stay healthy. Their defense has to hold up. And then if all of those things happen, you might also need one of the other teams that we would pencil in as a playoff team right now to have a down year. So maybe having Huberdeau and Kadri in Calgary instead of Goudreau and Kachuk means that they take some time to mesh and their chemistry is a little bit off and they don't have the year that people would expect of them on paper. And that's where if you have a good year and things go right for you, you can take advantage of another team that has things go against them. But you know, this is why we play the games on the ice and don't just play them on paper based on projections. Uh, is because, as we saw last year, a team like Vegas, who many of us thought would be the runaway winners in the Pacific Division, didn't even make the playoffs. So there's a lot of uncertainty around it. But, you know, the Canucks have a good enough roster to be a playoff team. They just need to go out and do it. Uh, in conversation with Brendan Batchelor, the voice of the Canucks here on Sportsnet 650. And, you know, Batch, only a couple weeks out now from training camp uh, in Whistler. And with Miller signed, long-term, he's here. We can stop talking about that. We can actually kind of look forward to some of the on-ice questions. What are, you, what are some of the things that you're going to be looking for and really curious about when training camp gets going? Well, I'm going to be really interested to see particularly how the forward group shakes out. Because, you know, we've seen Bruce Boudreaux you know, in the past, 
like to use Miller and Pedersen and Horvat at center ice. He's spoken about that in his conversations with me. He's spoken about that in the media as well, that he thinks that that three-pronged triple threat, I guess, down the middle with Horvat, Pedersen, and Miller is something that a lot of other teams don't have. So how, how is he going to structure the lines around those three guys? Miller is essentially your number one center, so who's going to be playing on his wings? Uh, is Horvat going to be in a shutdown role? Who does he think fits well with Horvat? And does that free up Pedersen to get some more favorable minutes against the third defensive pairing or the third and fourth line of opposition teams? And can they carve out some minutes there where he can up his production? That's kind of you know the most fascinating factor to me because I've, I I do this every summer. You know, every so often I'll sit down and sort of try to draw yeah. out the lines and kind of figure out who's going to play with who. And every time I do it, they look different. Uh, because there are all sorts of options there for Bruce Boudreaux. The interesting thing with Boudreaux is I think, you know, just speaking to some people and understanding him, his MO, we're going to get an idea very early in training camp of what he wants to do and what he thinks will work. And he is, is less likely to tweak that or to move guys around quite a lot like we saw Travis Green do during his tenure with the Canucks where, uh, you know, the line you were on on day one of training camp would be different than day two of training camp would be different than the first preseason game would be different than the last preseason game. I think it's much more likely that Boudreaux comes into camp with his line set and sticks with them for the most part. So, you know, that, that to me will be the biggest takeaway from day one of training camp when they step onto the ice is to see who uh, is grouped with who in that forward group and, you know, then to sort of read into that beyond, um, you know, just just getting those lines and, and understanding what Boudreaux's thinking and seeing how his vision may pan out on the ice once the regular season starts. Uh, Batch, just before we let you go, it was the uh, the six fifty fantasy football draft last night. I, I we were early, we're early in the process, but how would you rate uh, our guy Josh's performance as fantasy commissioner so far? Uh- well, uh, you know, as our, our buddy Marcus Fitzgerald was joking about in the chat, uh, you know, I, I had to download a new app. I had yes. never heard of the, the app that we, uh, that we ran the draft on. So, uh, you know, that was new. But uh, I think the draft went pretty smoothly last night. It didn't take too long. Uh, I know there was some chirping, particularly of me, for thinking through my picks, which, heaven forbid, I take. That was your first round pick. <laughs> Well, hey, I had a tough choice at six overall. There were some good guys left on the board. I had to do some research. But anyway, uh, I think he's done well, uh, but it's early days yet. As we know, uh, in terms of the history of of 650 fantasy pools, uh, there is usually controversy. There is usually backstabbing and underhanded tactics and we'll see how josh is able to uh to navigate those waters once we actually get into the season we got to play each other this week too so i don't know i'm feeling pretty confident but we'll see yeah well, well, we'll see. josh got some handouts in the draft which we can get into but uh we'll let you go batch thank thanks for the time as always man yeah, we'll circle back and see how Josh is feeling after I beat him. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Uh, there he is. That is Brendan Batchelor, the voice of the Canucks here on Sportsnet 650. Uh, Sportsnet today, Jamie Dodd, Josh Elliott, Wolf here. Yeah, draft yesterday. So here's the thing. We can we can get into kind of how it shook out. Josh got phenomenally, phenomenally lucky. Second uh, with overall. Pick, second overall pick. He ends up out of the first two rounds. Jonathan Taylor, who... A lot of people probably would have taken first overall. And then Travis Kelsey 
falls to him. So he goes Taylor Kelsey that in the first is, two rounds. Shocking. That was a shocker. Yeah. yeah. Lena took Mark Andrews before Travis Kelsey. One pick before. Which really surprised me. I don't know how many drafts you're going to see where Kelsey is not the first tight end off the board. So you get Kelsey falling into your lap. Come Honestly, on, if I if I had had a late first round pick, I would have been taking Kelsey. So I, I am very pumped. I will say, you know, Batch mentioned we all had to learn this new app, or a lot of us did. New, so the draft, you you were right. The drafting interface on Sleeper was great. Worked out very well. Mm-hmm. My big beef so far is I'm getting way too many notifications. Way too Same. many notifications from the app. Totally. Like, you guys can turn it off. <laughs> it's fine. But I'm... But, I'm worried that I'll miss something important, like a trade request or something. Or like a team name change. <laughs> yes. For some reason, the app feels compelled to notify you every time somebody changes the name of their team. And here's the thing. Look, we all like to to think up a funny name for our fantasy team, but we all know they're not that funny. They're yeah. not that smart. I don't need to look down and see, uh, oh, okay. Uh, um, Josh know. named his team Taylor Tots. <laughs> Josh That's named a good one. his team Taylor Tots. Pretty funny. <laughs> Glad I got the little buzz on my phone from that. Yeah. Uh, imagine the quality of name it would have to be to like actually to be like, wow, this is worth notification. it. Yeah. I did enjoy uh, Riccio. Couldn't, he had two names, so he just used them both. Yeah. He, he drafted McCaffrey and Tom Brady, so he, he named his team Run CMC and the Brady Bunch. Just a two, <laughs> a two for one there from, uh, from Dan Riccio. I actually feel guilty because I changed my name right after I downloaded the app. So I didn't realize it was going to send a notification to everyone. You know what I mean? Yeah. You were the first one. To I was the first name. one and I didn't, so I didn't know. So I feel bad now that I made everyone get a notification and look at their I phone. Mean, you did it right after. So if you had downloaded the app before every single pick, you get a notification for Yeah. That's, so I, I, that I is absolutely wild. Tuned out of, Whatever notifications they were getting from the app, re- I I, di- I wasn't a fan of that part, but I just like the app and the website more than other. Ones. It reminds me of um, like a reply all situation where it <laughs> yeah. just keeps getting worse and worse, and then people are like replying to say stop replying all, but it's like, but you're making the problem worse by <laughs> yeah. doing that. You're lost in the chain, and then you can get into the people who are like making jokes about it by replying all and and trolling other people. Maybe I'll get into that. I'll just keep changing my name every day, all the time, to to really annoy people. But please do. That that's my biggest issue so far. Uh, Rager Texton, who had the first and who did they take? It was Dan Riccio who went with Christian McCaffrey mm-hmm. at number one, and, which isn't a bad look. Pick. If you're going for upside, now I've been burned by McCaffrey in the past, so if I was drafting first overall, I would not have gone that route. But if you're just looking for upside, I get it. I get it. He's if if he's healthy, it's a full PPR league. He's going to be a stud. It's just. I don't know if you can trust him to be actually healthy for for that for that much of the season. Yeah, so I, I know what Reach is doing, but I'm not sure it would have been the pick uh, I would have made. The we- other one um, that I was surprised by is our guy Ben, producer Ben, doing the rarely seen three tight end draft. Yeah, you're loading up with the position. Ben, it's a weird strategy. I don't know. Let's I, see if it pays off. I've done a little bit of research on it, and like I was just like, okay, I have five wide receivers, I have four running backs. And so I was like, if one of my tight ends gets injured, I want to be covered. I have Josh. And then if that guy gets injured, you really want to be covered. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't know. I just I get the two tight end, the three tight end. I was that's that's where I got confused. But I guess it was your last pick, right? It's the last pick. I don't know. The thing is, by the end of it, in a twelve-team league, and especially where you're drafting an extra flex because you don't have a defense. Yeah. 
it, it is slim pickings towards the end. After the tenth round, I was like, "Woo!" We're this going is into tough. the final three spots. I was like, "Do I? I have to take three more guys?" Yeah, I don't want to. They're I, all terrible. I took a kicker like a couple rounds before I planned to because I was like, "I don't know who to take." Justin Tucker, you're up. But I mean, I think I have three of the best players at their position: Taylor, Kelsey, Tucker. Yeah, <laughs> easy win. Yes, Justin Tucker is going to carry you to victory. <laughs> you watch That's for sure. Wait anyway, we play. McPherson's going to make sixty-five yard field goals this year for me. And Tucker's going to make a sixty-six one. Uh, this text comes in. We're drafting with sleeper right now. Do you guys have any opinions on who to choose for rookies? Not really, but my my number one rec would be turn the notifications off for sleeper. <laughs> if you do not want to be flooded with notifications on your phone, just go ahead and turn those right off. Uh, Sportsnet today here on Sportsnet 650. 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, we'll get a little Canucks talk in on the other side, plus some interesting stories an interesting story, maybe a story from the NBA. And I want to talk about something that happened in the Blue Jays game last night as well. That's coming up. It's Sportsnet Today, Sportsnet 650. to Sportsnet Today on the official home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Let's go! Chumbawamba in the house. Are this is from- the best song we've played today, by far. I agree. No I, doubt. Well, now that nice. I know the song, let's just wait for the tub thumping lyric to come in. It's not coming. It's not coming. It doesn't <laughs> no. exist. Okay. It doesn't exist. Fair Sorry, enough. Josh. Um, Are they from Australia? Scotland or Ireland, I believe, oh. which I know I shouldn't get those two places confused, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure it's one of those. Ben, can we get a, a, a look up on where Chumbawamba hails from? We'll do some research. All right. <laughs> get back to me. Dive into the books there. We've been uh, we've been inundated, flooded with uh, suggestions for absolutely awful songs we could play. Maybe we'll, we'll choose one to close out the show just before we go. But there are some truly, truly putrid ones uh, in... The inbox, 650, 650 right now. It's Jamie Dodd, Josh Elliott. Well, final segment of Sports Debt today, Canucks Central with Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah is coming up at 11. Uh, I wanted to get a couple other topics in. First of all, this was an interesting one to monitor this morning and I guess late last night as well. There was a tweet from an AP sports writer, Willie G. Ramirez. That went like this. Multiple sources have told me the NBA wants to finally announce expansion to Las Vegas and Seattle during the Clippers' two preseason games at Seattle's Climate Pledge Arena on September 30th and October 3rd. The Lakers then play two preseason games in Vegas on October 5th and October 6th. That tweet was up for, I think, about eight hours, and then it has since been deleted. Mm-hmm. So... Is there any, is this is this uh, where there's smoke, there's fire, Josh? Is there anything to this, or is this a uh, source gone haywire and he's trying to make it seem like it never happened? I mean, the fact that nobody else is saying anything about it makes it seem like it's not a thing. But also, maybe some of the better insiders will be like, "Hey, I checked; it's not happening at this point." You know what I mean? Yeah. But I don't like it. It also makes a lot of sense. The NHL is at 32 teams. NBA, like you're coming out of COVID. We all know Seattle and Las Vegas are going to get teams at some point. It it makes a lot of sense to do it when they're hosting preseason games and be like, hey, one year you're going to get a team. The perfect time to roll it out, right? The perfect time to roll it out. For a season. I don't know, because you're right. There is something when it's just one guy who is out on a limb 
and then he deletes the tweet. Obviously, you're going to be pretty suspect. The other thing with NBA news is I feel like it's, it's almost not official until either Woj or Shams yeah, reports exactly. it, right? Especially with kind of big, like, high-level league, a, a high level league news. Yeah. You know what I mean? I feel like if it was imminent, Woj would know about it, and Woj would probably tweet about it, right? Yes. Don't you think so? Unless it was a, hey, we're going to announce this. Please don't tweet it. But, like, right. he would, I, I think he just would. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I don't know how often, and maybe it happens all the time, but I don't know how often these big guys have intel and they're just like, oh, I'm not going to share it because I want the league to do a fun announcement. Yeah. Who knows? I, I don't know. know. I don't, don't, I, we don't get paid that. I much. think, I, no, we don't. We don't get paid to make those decisions. Yeah. I think Woj would, uh, I think Woj would happily tweet that out if he if he came across that news but who knows um i have some information all right let's go okay so this band chumbawamba it's a british band okay originating in burnley which is in lancashire england okay so they're english right. population of seventy three thousand. we were there all around it yeah. we were close yeah we were close we're, i knew it was from the british isles yeah and yeah. i knew it was some part of the british commonwealth <laughs> yes and Nothing. that was their most popular song. Oh, yeah. No, and like not even close. That yeah. was the only song that anybody's ever heard of Chumbawamba. one-hit wonder. Very much a one-hit wonder. Very, very much a one-hit wonder. Um, more great uh, bad songs, uh, song selections coming into the 650-650 Dunbar Lumber inbox. The other thing would... Okay. So Seattle... Let's say Seattle were to get an NBA team. I'm a huge NBA fan. Are you jump like are people jumping on the bandwagon from Vancouver if Seattle gets an NBA team? Because I know there's a lot of Seahawks fans, obviously. But that's also been around for so long and they won the Super Bowl to convince a lot of fans. And right? there's no as much as a lot of people here hate the Toronto based teams, there's no Toronto based NFL team that no. people could root for instead. No, there's no Canadian NFL team. Yeah. There's nothing like that. It is if, if you're looking for any sort of rational reason to hook onto an NFL team, it's pretty much the Seahawks are bust. Or you're just choosing one out of a hat. Yeah. That's basically it. I don't know. Do you think it would be a big deal here in Vancouver if Seattle were to get an NBA team? I think the bigger thing would be like, okay, they got a team. When are we getting a team? But I don't know. Like, I, I think some people would jump ship just because they're probably not a fan of a specific NBA team. And they're like, hey, here's my chance. There's a team close to Vancouver, and I can maybe go to a couple yeah. games a year. I don't know. Like, personally... I don't think I would. Like, if Vancouver got a team, I would immediately be on board. Regardless of whatever sport it is, I will leave my allegiance to, if I'm a Blue Jays fan and Vancouver gets a baseball team, I will be a fan of the Vancouver baseball team. But so Seattle... You, you would break up with the Minnesota Vikings and Kirk, yes. and Kirk Cousins yes, if Vancouver got an NFL team? I'd be a little, that would probably be the one I would be most upset about. Like, I would hope <laughs> Vancouver would be an AFC team just so it uh, eases the blow a little bit. Yeah. But. I don't know. I, w I would be uh I would jump ship. I think the biggest thing if Seattle got an uh, an NBA team would just be it wouldn't necessarily be a oh I'm going to be a huge fan of that team now. And I don't think a, I think it would take some time if it mm -hmm. were to build at all in Vancouver. It would just be okay, Seattle's an incredible travel destination for sports now, right? I mean, if yeah. you could time up, you know, a Seahawks game and an NBA game or the Canucks playing the Kraken and then a couple days later the NBA team plays, right? The Mariners in October, all of a sudden they'd have all four big four North American sports mm -hmm. for you to go down and see. That would be really cool and I think there'd be a lot of people to have excited to have the NBA much more accessible than it is now where the closest team is all the way down in Portland, but I don't know if it would really 
I don't know. I, I don't think there there's still as much as there are some Raptors fans and you see, you know, Warriors hats around and all that. I don't think there's one NBA team that's most popular in Vancouver. And I don't, I'm not sure a Seattle expansion would uh, would change that either. And I mean, we will we will see if it actually does come to fruition uh, when the Clippers play their preseason games in Seattle at the end of the month in the beginning of October. It's also different when you have your you've had your own team before, right? Yeah. It's harder to latch on to another team. Uh, Jimmy from North Van says, Ever since watching the Sonic Gate documentary on YouTube, I've had no allegiance to any NBA team. I've been waiting impatiently for the Sonics to come back so I can give them my money. Well, so there you go. There's a vote for let's go. Let's get a Seattle team so I can be a big fan. I mean, there would be some people jumping on the yeah. bandwagon. I don't doubt that people are like, Hey, this is now the closest team to me. Yeah. I'm going to be a fan. Yeah. Well, and like, I totally, I applaud you for doing that i just don't know if i could do it <laughs> yeah i don't know if i could convince myself to be fully uh fully invested uh i wanted to talk about something that happened in the jays versus the orioles game jays lose nine six they'll uh, they'll finish the series today against baltimore jays still have a a chance to take three out of four strengthen their lead over the orioles in the al wildcard race but this is something that's come up a bunch around major league baseball this year specifically a couple times for the Jays, and it's the the blocking the plate rule, where there's a play at home plate, and the catcher gets called for blocking the plate, and the run scores. Now, you remember earlier, there was the series in Minnesota where it helped the Jays. They got a big win because first the runner was called out. I believe it was Whit Merrifield. First he was called out. They overturned it. They said, nope, the catcher's blocking the plate. Jays win. Mm-hmm. In this game, it hurt them. It was... Uh, Adley Rutschman for the Orioles scoring Alejandro Kirk. They initially called him out. Then they go back to the replay and they say, nope, Alejandro Kirk was blocking the plate. That run counts. This might be the worst rule in sports right now for me. <laughs> it is so bad. And when the Jays one, ha- when the one that helped the Jays happen in that Minnesota series, at least I could kind of squint and read the rule and say, okay, I kind of get where they're coming from here. And I, I, I will say, I was like, you know what? It looks like he was blocking the plate a bit. Yeah. yeah. It's like, okay, I don't really love it, but I can kind of, you know, if I twist it around and, hey, it's my team, so I'm happy about it anyways, I can kind of see where they're coming. And the thing with the run yesterday is, okay, it didn't cost the Jays the game, right? It didn't help, but it didn't cost the Jays the game. I have no idea what they're talking about when I watch the replay. Like, no. no idea. Absolutely no idea why that should be called back, why that should be overturned. Rutzman has nothing but space, a straight direct line to home plate, and that's what he takes, and he slides, and Alejandro Kirk is not even close to blocking the plate, but I guess because earlier in the play, before Rutschman was there, he, caught the he ball was straddling the, the line, but yeah. then he got out of the way. Yeah. So what's the problem here? It's like, well, you're not allowed to set up at any point in a spot that blocks the plate. But he got out of the way. The the plate was not blocked at the at the time that matters. There was no blocking of the plate. So what's the deal? Why are why why are you overturning that call? It makes no sense whatsoever to me right now. Yeah, I wish I could look at it and like you're right. I I get what they were saying, but I was like, you know what? This rule just doesn't make sense because Yeah. Yeah, I I completely understand, hey, you got to give a path to the plate for whatever player is coming in. But if you can catch the ball, maybe you're set up on the line or whatever, and then you move out of the way, like, that's, you did it. You're not, you if, gave if, them a path. If the goal is to 
prevent catchers from blocking the plate. Well, it worked last night in a sense because Kirk didn't block the plate. He got out of the way. You, I don't see how you can penalize guys for previously having blocked the plate in a way that didn't affect the play at all. It'd be as if the NHL brought back the uh, the goal in the or the foot in the crease rule, but yeah. it was like. Not just when the goal is scored, but if at any point in the play your foot went in the crease, oh, no, 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 that goal was called off. Yeah. It's like, well, but it wasn't there. Well, yeah, but earlier it was there. Well, what does that matter? He still ran straight to home plate, had an unimpeded slide to the plate. It didn't matter at all. Yeah, the only – the rule should just be, hey, if the guy slides in the act of sliding, you block the plate, then, hey, he's safe because you you didn't do enough to get out of the way, but – Sometimes the ball path just takes you into the lane. Yes. And you can't do anything to stop it. Like, are you just going to miss the catch? No, you can't. Oh, well, I guess I, I, I would, I'd have to straddle the line, the baseline here. So I guess that ball is just going to go over my head. Tough, tough stuff. No. And a lot of stuff goes over Kirk's head. He's not a tall dude. Yeah. You and gotta, uh, you got to do what you can if you're Kirk. Lots of texts coming in here. That call last night was by far the worst. He wasn't blocking the plate at all. Greg, the dairy farmer, says to add to it, Kirk was on the inside to let the first runner touch home. Then he moved to the middle to catch the ball. Then he goes to outside to give up the plate. And then they call it blocking. That's the thing. You kind of have to be able to move around. Different things happen, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, hey, I got to get out of the way of this runner. Oh, but then the ball is coming back. I'm going to have to retreat. It's going to take me over the line. That's baseball. That's how it goes. And Dan in Fort St. John says, I don't understand the rule. He was blocking the plate when the runner was like 50 feet away, but was well out of the way by the time he was even close. And look, I understand that in order to avoid injury, they don't want to have the collision play at the plate, right? And yeah. maybe the best way to do that is to have some sort of rule that prevents blocking the plate. But it should be actually about blocking the plate then. It shouldn't be about, well, you were kind of there earlier in the play. As Dan says, when the runner was 50 feet away. It's not like Rutschman had to slow down or change his line. He ran the exact same line he was going to if Kirk had been anywhere else in the diamond. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to think about what Kirk, like, would he have had to go from... Like behind the plate? Like around the plate <laughs> yeah. and then back and know. catch it? I guess if he had done, if he had maybe gone across the baseline faster, maybe they wouldn't have ruled it. Yeah, but that was just such if if that is the letter of the law in as as the MLB sees it, as Major League Baseball sees it interpreted correctly last night, then they have to change the rule immediately because that is simply an atrocious atrocious rule. And having these bad rules on the books, it's such a ticking time bomb, right? And especially hey, we're only a month away from the start of the Major League Baseball postseason. I don't want to see Jays, not Jays, whatever. I don't want to see a, a major, you know, ALCS, NLCS game decided by this rule that nobody likes, nobody understands, can be completely ridiculous. You, you're not blocking the plate at all, and somehow it still gets called. That's a major risk. If I was Major League Baseball, if I was Rob Manfred, I would be terrified of having some sort of controversy like that right now. Yeah, and it, like honestly, I don't even think Orioles fans were watching that last night, going, "Hey." Well, that's, that's got to be a run. He, he's blocking the play. Like what? <laughs> yeah. Like, no, why are they even reviewing it? Nobody is going to fault the umpires for calling it out. Maybe a couple people on Twitter is, are going to be like, hey, actually, by the by the letter of the law, that should have been safe because he kind of blocked the plate. Like, I think it's okay if you're baseball. And look, you can make an official rule change in the offseason, but you're right. If, if this happened in the postseason, are they going to call that? Like, or is it just going to be in the roof play room? Whoever's in charge being like, we can't, we can't call that. I know it's, get... it's puts them in a really different, difficult spot because they've set this precedent now where they're going to 
very, very closely follow the letter of the law. And I understand that. I, I get that. But who wants to see that call? made that way in the playoffs. Nobody. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to see it called that way. Uh, this text comes in to add to it. Baltimore reviewed it for blocking. I think the runner was safe because Kirk gave him such an easy lane, which irked me even more that they were reviewing it for this reason. I think that's a great point. He might have been safe anyways because Kirk was trying so hard <laughs> yeah. to get out of his he way and give him the lane. The tag. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this one comes in again, making the same uh, comparison that I did. Blocking the plate rule is the equivalent of the skate in the crease rule. It will decide a championship. Dan in Fort St. John says, I hope the World Series is decided by that rule. Uh, Jeff from Mission says, catcher stand at the plate after a player gets a hit. Does that mean he's guarding the plate too? Yeah, it's the catcher's around the plate. Catcher stands around home plate. That's what happens. That's where he be. As long as he's out of the way and he's not changing how the runner has to approach Home plate, to me, I have no issue with it whatsoever, but apparently uh, Major League Baseball does right now. What is there a most a current most hated rule in the NHL? Is it offside reviews still, or do people are people still on board with them? I think it's that. Maybe goaltender interference yeah, reviews. But see, it's all the reviews. Goaltender interference, at least. Nobody ha- like there should be something called goaltender interference. You should obviously not yes. be allowed to interfere with a goalie and a goal is scored as a, as a result. To me, it's more of a problem of how it's applied, and no one knows what it is. It's consistently. way too arbitrary. Yeah, it's way too arbitrary. But I don't know if there's that one rule right now where people just hate the rule as it exists. You know, know what I mean? With like review stuff, I feel like people really get upset about it all the time, and. I wanted to ask you guys, like, what do you think the balance is between reviewing things and then we're watching the strike box on TV every Jays game and you're just seeing calls get missed left, right, and center, and people get upset about that then. Yeah. So there was a moment in the playoffs, it was a call, it was the Colorado series where McCarr was offside and it got called back, like, it was a goal, and people were freaking out about it, cause it, it but it was a review. So how do you balance the, we got to stop taking this much time, but we want to get the call right? It's tough, and I've been roasted by the inbox before for saying I would have no problem with seeing fewer replays in the NHL because I get it. People want to get the call right, but there's also a point where you're debating things that had no impact on the play, you're slowing the game down to a crawl, and you're not really making people satisfied and happy anyways. So I would be okay to see it scaled back. One suggestion I've heard is for really close plays, right, like even something like an offside challenge, give them a minute to watch it in real time or 30 seconds to watch it in real time. And if they see, oh, it's clearly offside, boom, overturn it. But if it's the kind of thing where you have to spend 10 minutes slowing it down, zooming it in just to see that millimeter of white, what are we really doing? That's kind of my attitude. That is a good suggestion. I never really thought about the 30 second minute thing, but I I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I will say I'm uh, I'm a big fan of reviews. Like I, I think. So am I. Everything, everything should be. Re- <laughs> That's such a funny way to like, just imagine you're like, all right, here's another <laughs> <Yes>! review. <laughs> Gonna get my popcorn out. <laughs> About damn time. Crack another beer. No, but I like. I just think in most sports they help the game. Because I would be more frustrated as a fan to see a call not get overturned that should have been overturned yeah. than a call get overturned against my team that should have been called. I think the the problem for me is that there's this idea of we'll just get the call right. But the thing is there's – I mean, the – goaltender interference is a great example it's still a judgment call so even if you slow it down and take forever to review it 
people are going to be unsatisfied with the call, right? Because it's arbitrary. As you said, there's not one clear, this is goaltender interference and this isn't. At least with offside, you can say, well, look, we can see the white. We know clearly he's offside, so it has to be that call. I can get that. But with something like goaltender interference, it's, okay, Why are, like, you're reviewing it, but it's still just a judgment call. Judgment calls are weird. Same with, like, kicking motion. We got a couple texts about that. Kicking motion. Yeah. Sometimes I'm like, oh, that's a clear kick, and then it's not. And, it, it, like, I just don't know. You can review it all you want, but, like, you need to make the rule clear. And if it's something that is a judgment call, I I would say maybe, like, make that not reviewable or yeah. at least have a time limit or whatever to make it so it speeds up the game. Because I, I don't know if I'm a ref, I'm watching it. I'm like, well, maybe it was goaltender interference. Maybe it wasn't. And obviously it's their job to know, mm-hmm. but I just don't know if they're a hundred percent sure. Every time they call it, even after review, I think yeah. that's a hockey thing though. Like there's so much randomness in hockey, like the kicking rule. Okay. He was stopping to going towards the crease, but he angled his skate yes. this way. So the puck went in the net. You no, know, he did it on purpose, but he was quote unquote stopping. That doesn't really exist. I'm watching tennis highlights right now. They do the challenge. It's in two seconds. The ball was either in or out. Yeah. Like, it's done, right? It's black or white. Hockey has so much of that gray area. Wasn't there that in the Flame series? Yeah. Was it? Yes, Coleman. Coleman. Yeah. And it, I, that the kicking, we've got a lot of people. We've had people texting in the delay of game over the glass call, uh, the instigator rule for hockey, for hated rules in hockey. But a lot of people texting in about the kicking motion as well. And, what, what annoys me about the kicking one is that the NHL and their explanations, they often come up with some sort of like intent, right? Oh, well, we think he was trying to do this, but you don't know. And also, is that really part? Like, you are allowed to actually deflect it in. You're allowed to angle it in with your skate. So, yeah, just because he was trying to put it in, that doesn't make it a kicking motion, right? He that wasn't just means trying to kick it. It was an intentional motion, but it doesn't mean it was a kicking motion. And I think they've completely lost the plot on how they interpret that rule. Again, I understand the safety considerations with you don't want guys swinging their legs and swinging their skates. I understand that. But they've I think they've gone too far. Where now it's like any sort of forward movement is, oh, that's a distinct kicking motion. It's like, no, that's not what a kicking means. It's yeah. not what a kick is. You need to see, like, you just need, you know a kick when you see a kick. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's yes. it should be obvious when you see it. If they want it, if they want to call it this way, so they should change what the rule says. Mm-hmm. Right? Because now they're just calling any sort of movement of the skate a kick. And that's not what kicks are, right? We know what words mean. And, and, <laughs> we and that's figured not it what out it means. a long time ago. <laughs> that is not what it means. Uh, 650-650, it is Sportsnet Today here. Uh, final few minutes before we turn you over to uh, to Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah with Canuck Central. Get any final worst rule in hockey in sports thoughts uh, that you have in. So, Josh, it's NFL week one. Massive, you're a massive Vikings fan. I am, but I understand that you have I've screwed yourself a little bit here. Yeah, on Sunday. So on Sunday, I'm going to Arizona, which which should be fun. I'm going to see the Grand Canyon. Sure, I gonna, love the Grand Canyon. Going to see some rocks and stuff. Um, but when I booked the trip, I wasn't like thinking about what I want to do that weekend, aside from going on a trip. And yes. then uh, about a week ago, I was like. That is the opening Sunday of the NFL season. So my flight leaves from Vancouver at 7 a.m. Okay. and then, On Sunday. Yes. Okay. And then I don't land until noon. Or like That's a long flight. I think there's a layover. You, oh, you must stop somewhere. There's a layover in Salt Lake. But Ooh. I'm not going to be able to 
watch any of the morning games, aside from like the last maybe quarter of a couple of them. And then the Vikings, they play at one, they play the afternoon game. So 125 or whatever it is. They're playing against the Packers. So a really big game. And obviously the first game of the season is always a big game. I'm going to have to like find a place to watch it because we can't check in to our Airbnb mm. until three or four. That's tricky. I don't know. That's tricky. It's going to be tough. Be, there's sports bars in but Phoenix and Arizona. Here's the other thing. The Cardinals are playing at the same time, and they're playing a home game against the Chiefs. Right. Thought about going. It's going to be way too quick of a turnaround, but I'm worried that every place in Arizona is going to be like, well, the Cardinals are playing, and we're going to play that game. It's going to be hard to find a place to watch a Vikings game, so I'm probably just going to have to figure out how to like? I'll just watch it on my phone, most likely. Not ideal. I worry, though. Uh, no, here's the thing. I think most major American cities, yes, obviously, if the home team is playing, that's going to dominate. But they'll have an NFL bar where you I can, guess. and it's it's Vikings Packers, right? Yeah. It's not like it's you know like Jaguars and whoever, <laughs> right? Like Jags Panthers or something. Yeah. Right? It's a, it's a big fan of TV. You know, big divisional rival. Packers are a big public team. I think you'll be able to. To make it i believe in you josh you Thank can make you. it happen even if you're lugging your backpack to like buffalo wild wings or whatever <laughs> we got a text don't worry your flight will be delayed five hours and you will be screwed regardless i mean i would kind of welcome it <laughs> like <laughs> sure woo yeah it would it would cause some issues but it would really solve a couple problems as well all right that's gonna do it for us uh canuck central dan riccio satyar shah they're up next thanks for listening thanks for texting that's the home of the canucks sportsnet 650